0: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. Today, we're here with El Benzvi from Ben Gurion University of the Negev, where she teaches American Studies. She recently published earlier this year her book Native Land Talk: Indigenous and, Ar- and Arrivant Rights Theories. Welcome, El.
1: Hi. Thanks, Ryan.
0: So, how did you come to this project?
1: Okay, so um, my dissertation was on the process by which um, white 19th century U.S. writers imagined themselves as um, natives of America. And it was only in the aftermath of that work that I had realized that the question of what it means to be native Especially in the early nineteenth century, with the projects of uh, Indian removal in African colonization was much more uh, rich and interesting um, if it was looked at from the perspectives of African Americans and Native Americans so the The idea was to look at the meaning of that category native, what it means to be native within the context of settler colonialism and also within the context of uh, the political projects and discourses and philosophies of African-Americans and Native Americans.
0: Why did 18th century rights claims by Native Americans and African-Americans focus on a multiplicity of birthplaces? And what prompted 19th century African-American abolitionist Frederick Douglass to write that all this Native land talk is nonsense?
1: Okay so uh, Douglas is a writing in 1894 and um in the time between the 18th century and the late 19th century the meaning of uh, birthplace in relation to rights changes quite dramatically and this change is really the main story of the of the book um, and in order to understand how this change happens, um, we need to understand that the relationship between rights and birthplace was differential for settlers, for Native Americans, and in African-American abolitionist discourse. So settlers, especially in the colonies before the revolution, um, imagine that they, their rights derived from England and its monarch. And they often claimed the rights of British subjects as if they were born in England. So the fact that um, many of them were born in, in America was presumably irrelevant for their um, forms of entitlement that they claimed, because that entitlement was perceived as coming from England. Um, By contrast, Native American political philosophies um, presented rights as functions of the relationship between people and the land. So rights could not be imagined um, outside of a the particular um, the particular history the particular social formations that attached people uh, to their homelands. And um, one other thing that that um, distinguishes this very clearly from settler perceptions of freedom is that um, settlers came to define rights and freedom as something that depends on movement. The rights-bearing subject, which, as I will uh, talk about more, um, was symbolized by the figure of the settler, was a person on the move who carried his rights along with him over the territories that he traversed. So for for settler thought, land was often uh, perceived as antithetical to rights and to freedom, as an obstacle to right and to freedom. But um, African-American abolitionists um, insisted, by contrast to that idea, that freedom is only possible when it is grounded in a particular place that can support it, that freedom cannot be understood in a way that is abstracted um, from from place. And during the years between um, between the 18th century and 1894, when Frederick Douglass says that all this native land talk is nonsense. What happens is that the political philosophies of Native Americans about the importance of land for perceptions of rights and in abolitionist African-American discourse about how freedom must be grounded in particular place, these ideas together with the um, settlers' uh, abandonment of the royalist political logic create this pedagogical process in which settlers gradually begin to change their view of the relationship between birthplace and rights. Eventually, this leads to the creation of territorial birthright um, citizenship. So it is after this process is completed, territorial birthright citizenship becomes uh, U.S. law in the wake of the um of the civil war and um and at at that and and then later Douglas uh declares native land talk as nonsense now the context in which he does that is um is the rising racism and especially lynchings within the United States um and there are people who advocate the removal, the immigration of African Americans to Africa as a solution to racism in the United States. And Douglas speaks against this idea that going to Africa is going to solve the problem of racism and lynching. And he says that uh, all this native land talk is nonsense, because he responds to the idea that the true native land of African-Americans is actually Africa and therefore they should go to Africa. However, Douglass does believe that the idea of a native land is um, an important sociopolitical foundation. And he declares African-Americans American and therefore they should not leave the United States. Uh, because of the history of slavery, it is aftermath, and also because many African Americans have inherited what he calls Caucasian blood. All of these, um, for all of these reasons, um, Frederick Douglass insists that in fact, African Americans are natives of America and they should not leave.
0: How does your book undermine native settler and black-white binaries and reconfigure studies of imperial liberalism?
1: Okay, so um, these two binaries—the Native Settler binary and the Black White binary—these are two major explanations for the social political structure of the United States. The Native Settler binary is used um, in analysis of the United States as a settler colonial society. Uh, analysis that often question the sovereignty claims of the United States. And the black-white binary is used within analysis of the impact that the history of slavery and race have had on the role and position of African-Americans in the United States, um, and more generally on the role of racism in the world, even globally. Now, the native settler binary and the black-white binary um, have been shaped, I believe, in the period that I study in this book, in the 18th century and early 19th century, as each of these groups, African-Americans and Native Americans, have uh, worked to promote Their own rights and freedoms, um, and they mostly did it um, in ways that suggested that for them the other group uh, did not really exist or did not exist in any meaningful way, in any way that was, um, that had any impact on their own rights, on their own freedoms and entitlements or oppression. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, these two two binaries, the native settler and the black-white binaries, uh, clash when, whenever it seems that there is a necessary conflict between indigenous sovereignty and African-American freedom and equality. So, for example, when, um, when institutionalized racism within the United States is described as internal colonialism, the... Um, the suggestion is that this is what constitutes colonialism in the United States, as if the United States is not all uh, established on colonialism. And then there are also um, competitions over what really um, facilitated the U.S. growth into a global power, whether it was the dispossession of indigenous peoples and the uh, expropriation of their lands, or whether it was um, whether it was slavery. And I think that in order to overcome the limitations that these mutually exclusive binaries pose, uh, we need to understand the role of slavery. As a major contributor to u s settler colonialism and to the settler colonialism that preceded the u s in North America um, and to combine analysis of race with analysis of sovereignty and space in the history of the united St- of the United States, we can also take into account the fact that in settler colonialism, in other places as well, not only in the United States, there is this triangulated um, relationship where settlers take the land from one group of people and bring another group of people to work that land. Um, So settlers have perceived the land, slaves, and Native Americans, all of these, these three, Uh, entities as savage, wild. But while um, Native Americans were perceived as incapable of labor, slaves were perceived as the only people who can improve savage, wild lands. And then in order to do that, settlers have imposed feudalist ideals on African-descended peoples and on Native Americans in order to imagine their own freedom and their own progress by contrast to those feudalist ideals for which they saw uh, blacks and Indians. And this was also a process of heritability and property because land and slaves became the heritable property of settlers while the myth of the vanishing Indian was uh, perceived as a, an inevitable historical process that would constitute settlers as the new natives after having inherited that role from Native Americans. Um, and the, um, the liberal ethos in the United States um, and in its history served the imperialism and the settler colonialism within which it it emerged. So um, studies of liberalism and imperialism often often emphasize the distinction, the difference between past and present. Even though liberalism developed within imperialism, it was celebrated in the in the past without a critique of the imperialism on which it was based. And the role of of um, researchers today is to recontextualize liberalism within its denied imperial context but what the book shows is that um, Native Americans and African Americans have been critical of the imperialism that facilitated um, settler liberalism as early as the 18th century. So the book treats uh, those African American and and Native American speakers and writers um, not as objects of study that we might um, uh, today analyze um, how they related to settler colonialism, but as theoreticians in their own right, that we can learn from their theories about liberalism, imperialism, about, um, about settler colonialism.
0: With your exception, with the exception of your assessment of books by David Walker and Eloda Aquiano, why and how does your study reconstruct fragmented rights claims into fuller critiques of the settler colonial project, which includes uh, textual fragments by female authors?
1: Okay, so um, when I started this project, and I thought, where would I look for information? Um, the first place I wanted to go to were 18th century and 19th century newspapers. And my expectation was that uh, these newspapers, published in the colonies and in in the early republic, will somehow reflect um, Native American and African American uh, voices. But what I found as I read these newspapers, was that um, the print networks that settlers uh, established for themselves really served settler colonialism and its politics as well as its whiteness? Um, and I realized that if I wanted to find um, to find texts by African Americans and by Native Americans, it would be it would be more productive to think of these texts as fragments, fragments that have been marginalized, that That exists today within or through settler print networks because they were only parts of them were taken and incorporated and used in various ways that not always served the political purposes of the people who created them. So, so that idea of, let's say, taking a speech that a Native American leader has given and presenting it in a newspaper article only in a fragmented form that completely decontextualizes it um, and turns it into a spectacle, let's say, of an exotic Indian um, in, where well, the actual text was a political um, declaration by a Native American uh, polity. Um, this idea of fragmenting texts and reusing them was another aspect of dispossession, of subjugation. And one of the things that such fragmentation created is the convention according to which the only um, valid politics is settler politics, the only valid history is settler history, the only valid Political discourse or historical uh, discourse, uh, settler ones. Um, so my work really became uh, finding fragments and then trying to build up or reconstruct the contexts for these fragments of indigenous and African American speech and thought and philosophies. And the most um, the most significant erasure of indigenous and African American political voices were well, in the case of voices by women, African American and indigenous women, um, whose political voices did not fit settler perceptions as politics as a masculine project or pursuit. Um, so, The book deals with uh, rights theories of African-Americans and Native Americans in the 18th and 19th centuries, not as um, theories that are readily available and exist, but as bodies of knowledge that should be reconstructed because settlers have fragmented them. And through this intervention with fragments of uh, theories the book um, suggests that every political project necessarily relies on and emerges from certain political theories and if a theory is unrecognized in terms of archival collections or in the research as a theory it doesn't mean that it does not exist if we go If we look at the political project and we analyze, okay, so what is the political theory on which this project uh, relies, then that theory can be um,
0: reconstructed. How and why do distinctions between positive birthright and negative birthright facilitate settler colonialism?
1: Okay, so um, positive and negative birthright... Um, were really two main constructs through which settlers used um, feudalist thought to justify their own uh, claims to entitlement to American land and to slaves in America. Um, And the contrast between positive birthright and negative birthright um, made it possible for settlers to claim that status by birth was a natural foundation of freedom as well as of subjugation. So these political conditions uh, could be presented as natural, immutable, and the rights of settlers could be presented as a realistic necessity. So positive birthright was the condition that settlers claimed for themselves. Its, um, its origin is in the idea that the subject of a kingdom is granted rights and protection um, by the monarch of that kingdom. So this is positive birthright. It's the idea that there is um, some kind of a centralized uh, body of governance uh, that is the source of one's rights by birth, because the person was born a subject of that polity. Now during the revolution, settlers redefined this idea, and they redefined themselves as the bells of freedom in the world, really. And through this um, settler political thought, the settler was actually constructed as as the quintessential rights-bearing subject whose um, positive birthright entitled him to carry his freedom like uh, a personal possession um, to anywhere he chooses to go. And anywhere he would go, he would enjoy um, the rights that would be at least equal to, if not greater than, uh, those of that place. Um, negative birthright is a, an idea that is again rooted in, in feudalist uh, history, feudalist thought, and it was a major justification for the oppression of slaves and Native Americans. The idea that, naturally, the, um, the historical role of African-descended slaves and of Native Americans is to facilitate the development of the political project of settler colonialism by full labor for slaves and full disappearance for African Americans. And these two things, labor and disappearance, became sort of the, um, the inherent destinies of these groups. Now, these feudalist thought enabled settlers to view Indians as communities who live on lands that actually belong to the king of England or to the monarch of England, and therefore to view indigenous homelands as um, English or settler property rather than as indigenous homelands. And it also enabled settlers to view themselves as the lawful, almost natural owners of slaves and of the products of um, slave labor And by analyzing this distinction between positive birthright and negative birthright, we can start to think about um, the significance of feudalism to settler sovereignty and to the forms of governance on which uh, U.S. politics uh, rest. this distinction also exposes the extent to which freedom ideas of freedom depend upon um, systematic oppression and this helps to undermine uh, exceptionalist perceptions of freedom
0: on that note How and why did Mohegan writing shift from using settler legal forms to affirm tribal responsibility before 1684 to the post-1700 explicit dissociation between Native rights and colonial forms?
1: Okay, so um, Mohegan history is really um, a focal point of indigenous rights claims um, in this book. And in the first half of the 17th century, Mohingan leaders were allies of, um, of the settlers of New England, um, especially you know, most prominently during the Pequot War, when Mohigans um, together with the with, with settlers um, helped to attack uh, the Pequot. And um, Mohingans have, during the first half of the 17th century, um, signed treatises. And agreements with settlers um, based on a perception of a balance of power or some kind of equality between two polities the polities of the New England colonies and the polities and the polity of Mohegan. That was the basic assumption. And um, the Mohegans accepted. Um, settler reliance on literacy and writing and written documents as another manner by which they might be able to protect their lands in, the real, in a reality of, um, of ongoing settler encroachments. Now, um, during the 18th century, in the wake of and um, following um, increasing encroachments and land laws. Mohegans came to realize that colonial law actually acts in the service of, of colonists. In 1704, Mohegan became the first indigenous polity to sue a colony, it was Connecticut, in London, in the, in the court in London. Um, 70 years later, London ruled in favor of the colony, and frustrated the Mohegan expectation for equality and um, a balance of balanced powers between Mohegan and and Connecticut. Now, um, from the beginning of the 18th century, um, Owen a Mohegan leader, rejected Settler's feudalist claim of the king's ownership of Mohegan, the Mohigan homeland. While settlers thought about the native rights of Mohegan um, to its land as a commodity that may be transferred from Mohegans who may disappear to settlers who may uh, become the progressive new polity in that land. Um, Oweneko argued that actually Mohegan rights um, originate from the land and from, go- from the gods um, and did not depend from uh, or originate from the colonists of England. So what Oweneko does is he tells Seflos about a pipe that the Mohegans have found generations ago on their land and that pipe comes to represent their inalienable relation to their homeland. And this becomes a foundation for a political theory of entitlement and of right to the land that is completely independent of and whose whose historical uh, scope Uh, exceeds settler claims and settler existence and settler politics as a way of refuting um, settlers' claims to the rights on Mohegan land.
0: How and why did Mohegan separates employ irony to negotiate settler colonialism and incorporate brother-town resettlement, which drew on settlers' economic and racial norms, into a larger unsettlement vision? as compared to, for example, Aquiano's resettlement vision in his own narrative?
1: Okay, so um, while Owenneko presented his, um, what he presented, the Mohegan theory of rights, Mohegan political theory, um, as a valid political theory, settlers actually treated that theory as savage ignorance, or as mere uh, imitation and unsuccessful imitation of settler politics. Um, and in the face of that idea that your political theory is nothing but idle imitation or savagery, um, Mo- later Mohigan leaders, Joseph Johnson and Samson Ockham, developed ironic representations of Mohigan rights because within the terms of settler political discourse, these rights were utterly meaningless. So what um, Johnson and Ockham did is that they built on that idea of savage ignorance, but they twisted it. They claimed that Mohigans have been ignorant of settler politics and settler rights not because they lacked important information to be fully realised political beings, but because they existed in a world where this um well settler politics made little sense. So ignorance became actually a source of power. A source of empowerment for Mohigan to um, to declare their own independent thought and independent governing practices from from settlers. Now, I want to explain a little bit these two terms: unsettlement and resettlement, which are the two major uh, strategies of resisting um, settler colonial power that I discuss in the book. So, unsettlement are political projects that try to undo the settler order, to rearrange political relations not within the terms of settler power. Resettlement, on the other hand, is the idea that settlement is a powerful, um, powerful foundation of, poli- of the political reality in North America. It cannot be undone, and what we can do is try to rearrange it so that um, we gain more equality. So, um, generally, unsettlement was the strategy that Native American political theorists have developed in various ways, and resettlement was the strategy for African-American abolitionists who said, we, we, we are willing to accept the U.S. political system, but we want that system to modify itself so that we can be equal citizens within it. Now, the Brotherton Project um, that is... Um, developed by Mohegans as well as other natives from from, uh, New England is in a way a combination of unsettlement and resettlement as two forms of resisting settler colonial encroachments. Um, Because on the one hand, the Brotherton project through which natives from, um, from New England um, established their own new community uh, on a land in what became upstate New York. Um, they, they used the discourse of improvement, um, a colonial discourse of improvement, of improving the soil, improving the land. And they also used uh, settler perceptions of race because um, settlers have used... The idea of racial miscegenation and racial mixture as one of the processes through which Native Americans inevitably disappear. So, whereas so settlers have um, have um, said in New England, well, since these Indians have intermixed with uh, African-Americans, then uh, they are no longer um, natives. Now they are, they are black, practically, and therefore they, didn't, they are not entitled to the native homelands anymore. So um, in the Brotherton Project, one of the things that um, Samson Ockham and other people who have been involved have done is they said that they will not accept African descended people into into the um, community. Yet while they used these discourses of race and improvement that they borrowed from settlers, they also developed um, Brattleton as an unsettlement project by speaking about Brattleton and its relation to Enida in relation to a larger. Indian world, an Indian world in which settler politics was almost irrelevant, in which settler sovereignty was not valid. And the the whole development of Mohegan native rights from the late 18th century into the 19th century walked through conflict and irony between unsettlement and resettlement as two strategies of resistance that have to be negotiated because of the contradictions, because of the difficulties that the settler project uh, posed for Native Americans. With Equiano, we have several resettlement projects that he proposes, that he aspires for, one that he tries and others that he um, imagines. Um, And in Equiano, by contrast to to the Mohegan discourses, the basic assumption is that imperialism and imperial economy have transformed the world and have transformed uh, human history to such an extent that they are irreversible, that imperialism and and imperial economy have become the structure of history itself. And any project that imagines an intervention in the course of history must um, undertake that intervention. Intervention from a position of, first of all, accepting imperialism and imperial economy as things that are here to stay. They cannot be undone. So what Equiano does is he tries to imagine conditions under which imperial relationships might change so that Africans are no longer... Um, forcibly removed from Africa, but they remain in Africa. And in Africa, they become participants in the uh, global imperial order rather than being transformed into the tools that facilitate that order.
0: How did African-American Petitions for Freedom... Slaveholder advertisements for fugitive slaves and U.S. protests against British impressment all relate to the arrivant notion that permanent settlement could affirm their own nativities and offer protections from enslavement.
1: Okay, so um, African-American petitions for freedom, slaveholder advertisements for fugitive slaves, and U.S. protests against British impressment um produced three distinct genres that explored the relationships between freedom and space. Um, African-American abolitionist petitions promoted that idea explicitly. The argument that, um, that permanent settlement is the would be the um, condition for freedom, for an affirmation of African-American nativities outside the logic of slavery that turned African-Americans into objects, into uh, property. So um, abolitionist petitions that African-Americans uh, started uh, presenting and writing in the late um, in the late 18th century used the idea of natural rights but they added a very important uh, principle to those ideas and that principle was indeed that freedom could not be practiced could not be exercised could not be realized without it's being grounded in a particular place. And in a particular place, often through the tool of settlement. So similarly to what I said about um, Equiano, it's this idea that imperialism um, or colonialism or settlement become the only um, historical framework within freedom um, can be imagined. Um, the other genre that I'm looking at is the genre of advertisements that slaveholders placed in newspapers in order to capture fugitive slaves. Now, um, for the slaveholders who placed these advertisements, the the escapes of slaves were a challenge to the idea that slaves were just property. And in placing those ends, slaveholders tried to revalidate the idea that slaves were just property. By by escaping, slaves have have proved this idea wrong. Um, And in order to try to find their fugitive slaves, Slaveholders had to imagine what freedom might have meant for their slaves, and and freedom often meant um, rethinking and reorganizing one's relationship to space, so that one does not does not anymore belong to the plantation on which one is forced. Um, to, to leave a label, but rather one can imagine and practice a different logic of belonging either by by, um, by traveling over space where one is not allowed to travel or by settling in, in, in place beyond the plantation in a place that... Um, where well, well, that settling constitutes a form of we can call it individual resettlement through which the fugitive slaves um, um, asserted their own freedom and their own humanity now, the third genre that i'm using the um the protests of settlers against british impressment really um really become an important chapter in the history of the relationship between rights and space in the United States. Because the impressment crisis that led to the War of 1812 um, happened because British authorities, the British government claimed that any British subject, regardless of their political choice, remains a British, a British subject for life. Um, even if a British subject uh, chose to become a naturalized citizen of the United States, Britain claimed that that person remained a British subject that the U.S. citizenship was not valid because British subjection was a condition that could not be reversed. And based on that idea, um, the British Navy um, arrested people from uh, U.S. uh, merchant ships um, and took them into service forcibly in the British Navy. So so protests written in the United States and published in the United States To resist this practice of British impressment, become an important archive of a, we can call it an extreme settler position on the relationship between space and rights, where attachment to space. Is dangerous. Attachment to any political body um, is dangerous. Well, you need to liberate yourself from any attachment because any attachment may, may turn to be oppressive, may turn into uh, a threat to your freedom. So, um, so I'm reading this, um, this idea. Articulated by settlers who say our freedom is a function of movement over space, not of belonging to space. I'm reading that by contrast to abolitionists and fugitive slaves who say freedom has to be grounded in space.
0: In addition, why did settler colonialism across indigenous landscapes render arrivant discourses unintelligible? And how did ideas of loss and defeat contribute to settler impossibility as well as unsettling possibilities?
1: Okay, so the context for this idea is um, is... The way that geopolitical perceptions, or perceptions of geopolitics interacted um, in a complex dynamic um, toward the end of the 18th century. So when the U.S. Um, gained its position as equal power um, in the wake of the revolutionary war following uh, its official recognition by uh, by the u k it claimed to have um, to have conquered to have achieved to have gained many lands that had previously been claimed by England in North America. However, those lands were still the homelands of native polities whose significant military power posed a threat to the United States and led the United States to a position in which the U.S. couldn't just say, hey, we got those lands from the UK, now they are our lands. The the United States had to say, okay, we recognize that these are your lands, Native American lands, and we will negotiate with you because we want these lands to be ours. So this led to i'm focusing on one uh, very interesting decade of negotiations between um native Americans primarily a confederacy of native American um polities that the u s called um the Northwestern confederacy and the united states between seventeen eighty five and 1794, in which negotiations focused primarily, not only, but primarily on the Ohio River Valley. And uh, during that that decade, both sides uh, came to know each other's geopolitical views that were quite different from each other. Um, And at times, they also had to accommodate each other's geopolitical views, even when those views were uh, anathema to their own um, geopolitical perceptions. So, for example, the U.S. in uh, treaty councils with native polities often had to provide gifts and food uh, to a large number of native uh, people, who came to participate in the Council, including not only the men who negotiated or even the women who negotiated, but also the children who had to be taught, um, taught about the treaty. Um, and the U.S. had to agree to schedules that were wasteful on its on its, from, it, from its own perspective. So, for example, Native leaders would say, okay, we've heard your comments, your uh, positions. Now we will have to go and discuss it overnight and sleep on it, and in the morning we will give you our, um, our reply. So I'm looking at records of negotiations prior to treaties between the U.S. and... Um, and um, and indigenous peoples, and what I see is that even though they di- they disagree about almost everything when it comes to geopolitics, um, they do agree on one thing: they agree that arrivals or African Americans have no um, entitlement to their own geopolitical perception that would have any validity within the political framework of struggles over sovereignty and freedom in the United States. So both Native Americans and African Americans who participate in these negotiations over how do we want to see what is going to be the fate of politics in these lands uh, both of them look at African Americans primarily as property rather than as uh, political agents therefore um, negotiations in this period show U.S. willingness to to recognize the validity of indigenous uh, political philosophies but um, but African American uh, geopolitical uh, perceptions remain non existent within, within these struggles. Um, now, negotiations from this period also show the history and the importance of impossibility as well as allotment for um in the construction of US sovereignty so i want to explain a little bit what impossibility and allotment are these are two doctrines of US um of US indian policies and they are often associated with later periods the impossibility doctrine became famous in 2005 in the wake of a supreme court um, decision, and the allotment uh, doctrine became famous in the late um, 19th century when the U.S. allotted um, reservation lands to individual native uh, landowners. Um, but actually, these two ideas, impossibility and allotment, um, are already present as very important principles of U.S. Indian policy in the first decade of that policy between 1785 and 1794. So um, I want to focus primarily on impossibility because the relationship between possibility and impossibility is really important for understanding um, what settler sovereignty is and how settler sovereignty relates to indigenous freedom. So the impossibility doctrine initially emerges from um, contractual relation, from contract law, in which um, if you sign a contract, but then due to any unforeseeable event, you are incapable of fulfilling your obligation according to the contract, then uh, your impossibility to do that is recognized and you are exempt from that obligation until you will again be able to to, uh, do what the contract obliges you to do. So um, this is... um, the impossibility is something of equity. But within U.S. Um, Indian affairs and U.S. Indian policy, impossibility became the the uh, substitute for the United States, the substitute for a moral justification of U.S. settler colonialism. Because... Um, the U.S. government could not uh, present a valid moral claim that would justify settler sovereignty. So they used impossibility as this, um, as this doctrine that says, well, because we have um, invested so much in improving the land and in settling the land, it is now impossible for us to remove settlers from that land even if we recognize that that land is the lawful homeland of indigenous people while settlers shouldn't have shouldn't have settled in the first place so when this argument is made in 2005 by the supreme court it sounds like there was a long history of settlement before that that maybe somehow makes that impossibility more valid. But actually, this same idea, this same argument was used by um, by U.S. commissioners way earlier in the 18th century uh, and in relation to settlements that were really uh, very young. So the idea was that Indian... Um, Indian polities are removable, settlers are never uh, removable. And um, indigenous speakers during negotiations have often often tried to emphasize the possibilities that existed despite U.S. claims for impossibility, that settler sovereignty was not a, a requirement that could not be bypassed, that could not be undone. That settled sovereignty actually was one possibility among many, and that it was possible to unsettle that regime in a way that would promote the peace and safety of everyone. Um, And this also relates to absolute perceptions of loss and defeat. For the United States, Loss and defeat, especially the loss and defeat of, indi- ex- uh, um, of indigenous peoples, um, were an important foundation of power relations. Uh, because as long as um, the confederacy, the northwestern confederacy of indigenous nations um, Posed a military threat for the United States. The United States understood that it could not accept all it wanted, could not get everything that it wanted. But once the Confederacy was defeated according to the United States in the Battle of Fallen Timberwolves in 1794, the U.S. assumed that it could demand and get whatever it wanted. But, But at that point when the Northwestern Confederacy of Indigenous Nations seems to be most defeated and seems to have suffered a loss from which it would be perhaps impossible to recuperate and to recover uh, when that and Anishinaabe leaders have suggested more radical Possibilities than any other than any previous negotiation records to change the geopolitical system. They suggested from a position of loss, from a position of defeat. They suggested um, dismantling the system of settler sovereignty in favor of um, of joint inhabitation. Well, settlers and indigenous peoples together will learn to relate to the land within what I call indigenous geopolitics and have this kind of transnational relationship that would be an alternative to U.S. absolute sovereignty. And through that, we can think of loss and about defeat, not as the end point of political relations, but rather as a place that enables us to think about radical possibilities for change.
0: Before and after the 1785 Cherokee negotiations within the region that became Hopewell Plantation, how and why did the trope of handholding in indigenous treaties come to symbolize both the equal relations and embodied living space that indigenous peoples proposed and the subjugating ones over objectified space that settlers wished to impose?
1: Okay, so I'd like to start by uh, distinguishing Geopolitical perceptions that are based on embodied space, these were the geopolitical perceptions um, that, uh, that founded the indigenous uh, politics that I'm talking about in this book, from um, geopolitical perceptions of space as an object, of space as objectified. That was the perception that uh, facilitated settler sovereignty. So embodied space is a space in which uh, human and other inhabitants are part of that space. They do not control or own that space, but they exist thanks to that space and in relation to that space. Whereas uh, objectified perceptions of space uh, treat space as an object that is to be dominated, that is to be controlled, um, that is to be um, that becomes mere resource for um, for claiming uh, rights for claiming um, for claiming power and um, these distinctions then were articulated in an important important phrase that indigenous negotiators used in uh, treaty negotiations with commissioners of the United States. So often, indigenous negotiators, um, when they began negotiations, they would tell the US commissioners, take us by the hand and lead us to the council uh, where we will negotiate. And the the idea of taking taking us by the hand was an idea of equal relationship, where we both acknowledge each other's um, each other's uh, needs, and we want to work together in equality uh, in order to meet those needs, but for The commissioners, this phrase sounded like something very different, because the idea of take us by the hand was was interpreted by them as something that is inherently hierarchical, that it is the U.S. that sets the conditions for negotiations, the conditions for the political relations between indigenous polities and the United States. Um, And actually what I found was that um, the United States has also used um, a, a more radical version of this idea of hierarchy, embodied hierarchy, by telling indigenous leaders, "You are now in our hands, and if we want, we can close this hand, our hand, and crush you." Um, so this became a threat that doesn't almost does not appeal in the official records. I only found this threat in a letter that uh, Jefferson wrote to the. Governor of Indiana Territory. But indigenous uh, leaders kept telling U.S. commissioners and U.S. leaders, hey, you keep threatening us with that threat. Why are you doing this to us? They kept saying, um, we have this equal relationship, this nation to nation relationship, and you should not treat us as if you um, control us. So what I'm saying is that the idea of um, this absolute hierarchy of control and domination was a function of a geopolitical perception that is based on objectified space rather than um, a geopolitical, um, geopolitical views that emerge from perceptions of embodied space in which there is much more room for, um, for dialogue, for um, some kind of equality, for power relations that are not over-determined by the absolute sovereignty acclaimed by one party.
0: As the trope of blood-enriched soil emerged in the writings of David Walker and 1817 African American protests against the aims and methods of the American Colonization Society, how in turn did the trope of indigenous ancestral graves challenge or merge with blood-enriched soil?
1: Okay, so um, the context here is um, Indian removal and African colonization, the two mass migration projects of the the 19th century United States. The idea was um, that the United States was destined to be a bastion of liberty as a white nation. And in order to fulfill that ideal, Native Americans should be removed from territories um, uh, in which there are US states, and African Americans should be removed from the United States and from America altogether, hopefully, so that they would all be resettled in Africa, which was presumably their only native land. And in um in protest, um of both policies of Indian removal and African colonization, both African American abolitionists and Native American activists and leaders um, used representations of the dead in order to propose an alternative view of history and therefore an alternative view of the present and of the future, and to claim their right to American lands. So, um, African Americans, African American abolitionists, claimed that the United States, the land of the United States, has been saturated with the blood of, of of their enslaved ancestors, that this blood has um, has become integrated into the soil, thereby transforming that soil into the lawful patrimony of African-Americans. So that U.S. soil actually belonged to African-Americans rightfully, rather than to white settlers. And at the same time, um, Native Americans who opposed Indian removal argued that the existence of the graves of their ancestors within the space of their homelands constitute an ongoing history that ties them to place, that provides them with political meaning, um, and that they cannot be removed from those places because of that legacy, which is also the foundation of their existence in the present and the foundation of their possibility of existence in the future. <clears throat> Now, uh, this distinction between blood and graves also relates to how um, settlers have, um, have imagined the history of slavery and the history of the native peoples in America because um, s- uh, slaves will often not interred in graves or in marked graves. Their graves were were not marked often. Um, The graves supposedly historically never existed. They had no place. The dead of of the enslaved had no place in America. Whereas the graves of, um, of Native Americans, at least since Jefferson, uh, and long into the uh, US history, have become an obsession for settlers who saw in them some kind of an origin, a narrative of origin for themselves, for settlers. Um, so when Native Americans claimed the significance of ancestral graves. Uh, against Indian removal. And when African Americans, abolitionists have claimed the significance of the blood enriched soil um, against African colonization, uh, these arguments also related in powerful ways to settler imagination of slavery's place in history and of indigenous history. Um, and For for settlers, both of these these symbols of human remains meant nothing for for the settler future, for settler's destiny. Um, But the, the main difference in the way that Native Americans and African Americans have formulated these claims in relation to the land and to the human remains in the land is that For uh, African-American abolitionists, the blood of the enslaved that was saturated in the soil became an expansionist metaphor, entitling them to all of the territory that the United States claimed as its own. Um, By contrast, for native um, polities that talked about um, the significance of their ancestral graves, they looked at space in much more specific terms. They spoke about specific homelands. They said, we cannot, we, um, we cannot um, give you this land and get land um, west of the Mississippi because land is, is, is not fungible. Um, it, could, it cannot be exchanged because this land is is inhabited by the remains of our ancestors and therefore it means something to us. It has an identity, it has a history that other lands do not have. So through that also, the idea that expansionist blood in the soil facilitates resettlement. Um, we accept the U.S. claim for this expansionist uh, soil, but we want to have equality within it versus unsettlement Um, indigenous polities claiming this is um, a geopolitical uh, logic that is completely different from U.S. uh, expansionist aims and cannot be reconciled with it. After
0: 1829... how and why did the removal crisis intensify tensions between two interpretations of ancestral graves? you know the idea of the perpetuation of a living community that depended on a sustained relationship with ancestral graves against the idea of ancestral graves as prophetic of the imminent dissolution of indigenous polities
1: okay, so um Whereas in anti-removal Indigenous discourse, ancestral graves uh, symbolized a history that was, that could not be reconciled with U.S. history, and whereas it um, it um, symbolized uh, complex relations between past, present, and Uh, future. And these graves were a way of saying land is not fungible and um, history and politics cannot exist outside of a very uh, specific relationship to a specific homeland. Um, Whites who advocated Indian removal also were fascinated with and obsessed with this idea of indigenous ancestral graves. Indigenous ancestral graves is precisely what settlers did not have, supposedly, in America. Because settlers were these new new coming um, lords or masters or owners. They did not have that sense of our history in this, um, soil. So uh, they presented indigenous attachment to ancestral graves and to, to the ancestors as another symptom of savagery, of a society that is um, antithetical to civilization and to progress. So they said the only reason why um, native people care so much about their ancestral graves is that they are savages. And even those those whites who said removal is for the benefit of Indians because they would be corrupted if they remain um, in a place that is reshaped by settler civilization, even then they could say it is better to um, to remove them to lands where uh, they will be cut off from their ancestral graves because um, they are so savage and they cannot withstand the corrupting effects of civilization. So ancestral graves really became important arguments for both people who uh, advocated removal and also for Native Americans who uh, opposed removal and protested.
0: Well, El, we're uh, almost uh, done for today. I have uh, one last follow-up question. What's next for you? Any projects, vacation, or what?
1: So I'm now trying to think again about the relationships between um indigenous and african descended political thought, uh, but i 'm thinking about it in broader terms, whereas in this book, I was looking at the very particularist uh, formulations of relationship to land and what that means um, and birthright in my next project i'm trying to think about how we can use how we can think about uh, indigenous and African descended political theories as alternatives for rethinking um, such large scale construct as humanity, what humanity might mean from those perspectives and what, what is the world that humans occupy from these political perspectives.
0: Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks a lot, Ryan.
0: So the book is Native Land Talk, published by Dartmouth College Press. Check it out. This is Ryan Tripp on behalf of L and everybody at the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. Please tune in next time.